Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Kajan. Kajan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Absolutely. Thanks, Robbie, for having me on. I'm Dr. Kaz Grace. I'm a senior lecturer in the design department at the University of Sydney. My expertise is in designing with AI. So that means how can we use AI to solve problems? How can AI work with us to solve problems? And thinking a little practically and also a little futuristically about the sorts of things we can do and try today and what that might say about tomorrow. What do you think would be, I guess, your maybe your small step focus when it comes to what we can use AI to solve problems in? We're really interested in what AI can do for open-ended some might say creative problems or problems which have like the potential for creative solutions. Uh, one of the things that I teach is that, and this is far from my idea, is that if you know exactly the problem that you're working on, then there's probably not that much room for creativity. Creativity comes or innovation comes when you don't really know exactly what you're working on. And it's as much an exercise in finding the right problem as finding the right solution. There's actually a good theory of, of creativity that says that it's this co-evolution between problem and solution. You work on the thing that you're trying to work on, but then you maybe change what you're working on, and then you work on the thing a little bit more. And so in that space, we're always about how can we use AI to work with a human to augment their creativity? So at the moment, we're building a fun little sketching toy. You have like a tablet, like an AI, like a like an iPad or something with a pencil and you're uh, and you're drawing and at the same time it's drawing lines and shapes as well uh, and the two of you collaborate to draw an idea you might write out what you're working on you say I'm working on a, a picture of a cat on a lonely street at night or something like that and it might be a bit like some of those uh, image generation AIs you've seen um, a lot of people have been talking about things like uh, OpenAI's DALI recently, which is very, very cool. But what we're interested in is how do you work with it rather than how do you have it do the job for you? So I guess that's the little step that we're working on at the moment. How can you and an AI, and an AI work together to draw a sketch? In the probably the first, like when I hit the 1,000 mark of 1,000 episodes and around like maybe 10 episodes in, I got really obsessed with AI art mostly because it was like, it's not a, you can obviously look at it and be like, this isn't made, made by a person. This is made by something. But the reason why you can tell it, it's slightly off. And I tried to figure out what this thing was. And I actually just found out recently, if you turn up the sharpness on it to the image, or if you fade the image out of sharpness, so make it a little bit more blurry, it starts to look more human. It's not so accurate. It's not so like 100% like, you know, a human can draw a circle, but an AI could draw a circle and it would be 100% perfect where you're like someone had to use a toy or a compass or something to make that. So I think that 
the way that people look at AI, it, people that know about it, for instance, it can be used to fix a gap in maybe something that a human can't do, which it can be used for. But no one has ever really thought of it in the sense of these two co-evolution together, not just in one aspect where it's like, oh, you get the AI to finish your problem or you get the AI to maybe take over your like I started off talking to futurists and everything. I am a Luddite at heart. Technology scares the hell out of me, but I know the benefits of it. And it's it's just about kind of introducing that. Like once you start learning that more of society is actually AI, is a lot of computers, is a lot of this, you start to become more comfortable with it. I think it's just a factor of people really don't know the full extent of what they can do and also how much they already are doing. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of like two visions of AI. One is like, just smart stuff that helps you solve simple problems. Every time you punch a search query into your browser and you go get some Google results or whatever, uh, or you go into maps and you say restaurants near me or something or other, those search processes use what we would recognize as AI algorithms. But kind of the magic's rubbed off those. We don't, we don't talk about them like they're AI. But when those algorithms were invented, that was done by AI researchers and they were published in AI conferences and journals. In fact, if you go back far enough, almost anything is considered AI. The algorithm that can stitch two photos together to make like a, a panorama image with your phone, how you can like take a big long photo, which is actually just the camera snapping shot after shot and then stitching them together. Those algorithms were thought of as AI computer vision task when they were um, written. But we don't think about that as AI anymore because it's simple. It's like just in the back end of something. What sorts your Google results or what recommends for you on Netflix or Spotify or what suggests the route you should take on maps to avoid the traffic, they're really common. And so they're not, they don't have that mystique to them. Uh, you're, you're like your Alexas and your Google Home assistants and things like that are starting to have the magic rub off them. Like, I feel like societally, we don't really think of them. You know, well, I, I think maybe people have different opinions there, but most people are familiar with like, what is their, uh, what is their reach? What can they do and what can they not do? But AI art is just this magical thing because art, unlike like wayfinding or sorting things, is something that we think of as really specifically human. Um, and, and I think it's probably, well, it's definitely, from a technical perspective, it's definitely a huge reach to call what these things are doing art because art is a much richer human endeavor where we draw on our experiences to share something meaningful and to evoke uh, this sort of meaning in others. And they ain't doing that. Like they're, they're not, they're not doing art, like uh, they're doing mimicry. Uh, well, they're taking bits a, and pieces of like actual yeah. photos online and then mashing it together. like And then mashing it together. Yeah. What, I, what I always said was like, why does it look like something's off about it? Like, why can I tell that it's not human made? And I always thought it was like, maybe it's emotion. You have to feel pain to draw pain, to put, express it out in a sense. It's like 
plain to meaningfully express pain. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't I couldn't express a blues song without feeling, you know, getting stuck at a bus stop and, you know, losing a girl or being in prison or something like that I couldn't sing about that experience. But then when you start like finding out there's just other filter effects you could use with it. But then the issue starts to become is like, is it the AI that we think in movies when we go an AI that can create art out of nothing? Like you give them an image. I, I, I just typed in something like um, sadness or depression. And it does a face with another face under it. Another, it looks like a bunch of different faces. And it is. It looks like what you would probably It say. does look like sadness. But it's also, I mean, so firstly, I love these things. They're amazing. They're super fun to play with. And technically, they are marvels. But they're also just trained on hundreds and hundreds of millions. I think Clip, one of the fundamental technologies at this sort of bunch of AI text to image things is trained on about 400 million pairs of an image and a description of that image. So it's not just seen other people's images, it's seen images with descriptions. Uh, and so it knows what that word sadness tends to appear beside. And it's powerful enough to invent from whole cloth an image that would exist alongside the description sadness. And I don't think that that is the same thing as understanding sadness. Understanding has like a, a groundedness to it. You have to have experienced the thing in some way. And that doesn't mean that you won't be able to have computers do art until they look, think, and feel like we do, but they would have to look, think, and feel some way, right? They don't have to be like us to be intelligent, but they have to experience things on their own rather than just try to mimic ours. I don't really know what that means from a technical perspective. The mathematical side of my brain is sitting there and thinking, what, how can I make experience into a function? And, and the designer side of my brain is sitting there going, well, you'd have to. Well, we get to the, we get to the more experimental side where this is kind of where we're, I wouldn't say that we're at the, the beginning of AI. I definitely think we're way like five, 10, we're definitely knee deep. We're knee deep in it. Um, but this direction, there's a, what I see as a fork in the road is what I started to learn more about is that there's a large controlling aspect where people don't want to lose the aspect of the human piece that goes into AI. That means at any point I can shut this thing down at any point I can influence whatever I want with it. It's still going to be mine. It's just going to be able to do basic functions by itself. And I think that's a safe slope, but I also think it hinders our progress onto what these capabilities can be. And if you look at the second road is if this thing does, excel past us and i mean that's a scary thing for a lot of people but i mean it could be it could be great it could be done so effectively so you know the best thing that could save so many things could fix the environment could handle so many issues where we're missing gaps of information i mean they're using it to solve like how the big bang was created i mean i know someone who's doing that they're called a reader and it's like they're they're just typing things into a simulation the ai just keeps popping out popping out until next thing you know they can hopefully get what the big bang was and i'm like so we have a large kind of decision to make are we going to let it be owned by corporations i know google had an issue with their ai saying that it was becoming sentient or was having these types of thoughts and emotions and these types of things and that scares a lot of people because they see so many movies where it ends horribly and i go okay well if you look at it from an aspect of this thing is now going to beat you and it's going to replace you, that's a very bad route. But if you look at it as something that you created 
something that was made by man that not only can excel past us, but also can be its own thing that can grow beside us. And I think that's a very important reasoning and a very important perspective to have in this type of conversation, because, I mean, we could there's a large gap where we could be a hundred years advanced at the same time period. So 2024 could look like a normal 2024, which was whatever that is, you know, where we're at now, just two years later, or it could be completely different where a lot of problems are solved. I, I agree. I think that there, there isn't so much one choice we face as, as humanity, right? Because I think we're just a little bit too disorganized for that. But there are certainly choices that each individual organization, university, researcher, anyone interested in this sort of stuff and everyone using this sort of stuff has to make. I actually think that the more pressing choices, I mean, let's let's come back to the idea of the sort of existential risk of us being surpassed by AI. I do want to talk about that. But I think it's really important that we first talk about the risk faced by the broad and careless implementation of the technologies that we have right now that, that does not require any element that is not already been published in a paper somewhere um there's a notion in defense research called a dual use technology right something that can be used for military purposes as well as for uh, civilian purposes and if you sort of extend that to this idea of a technology that can be used to help humanity to aid in the general flourishing of the human species and the overall endeavor of making everything you know better for everybody whatever that means i'm not a not a philosopher I'm not going to step into the into that particular uh uh Free bacon every question. day. Free yeah, bacon. free bacon every day, but enough broccoli that we all don't get uh, cancer. I could probably stomach those two uh, together for a long. A I long like time. broccoli. I don't know why people. Yeah, I actually, broccoli. I actually dig, I actually dig broccoli too. Um, but there's, there's this, there's this problem with these dual use technologies, right? So one side that they they can be used for for human flourishing, if you want to call it that. On the other side, they can be used for oppression and they can be used for uh, for destruction and then they can be used to uh, exemplify the gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and those things are happening right now. And those are the choices that I think face us right now. Um, I work in a design school and I teach a lot of young folks who are looking to work with interactive technologies with AI with VR, all these sorts of new and fancy things, uh, which is awesome. And I love getting to sort of shape the minds in some way of these young folks who are going to go out and do these amazing stuff that we could never dream of in their careers, uh, whether it's working in corporate, whether it's working in universities, whatever. Uh, but they, all of us need to be aware of the unintended consequences, the kind of downstream effects of the technologies which we put together. Um, there's a really, really old example. Target, the retailer, uh, had this very early uh, recommender system that uh, I don't know if you can mention a specific retailer on this post. So a big U.S. retailer, cut the first one out if you can't say exactly You're the name. You're going to say whatever US, you want. Yeah, sweet. So Target again. Huh? Um, Target uh, had this plan um, to offer personalized uh, recommendations to people. And apparently, I... I I'm pretty sure this story actually happened, but it might've been one of those wild internet myths, who knows? Re uh, personalized catalogs. They offered a personalized catalog to someone that contained a whole bunch of uh, pregnancy-related stuff. 
she was 17, it went to her dad. The mail went to her house. She was living at home. Her dad find out that uh, she was pregnant from the uh, Target catalog. And that was probably 15 years ago or something like that. And I was flipping through it and thinking, hey, hang on, how does your personalized catalog have all this stuff in here? Um, and of course, there are huge difficulties with technology and ethics and the unintended consequences of stuff that might seem sensible, right? Uh, Facebook got into trouble for saying, have to use your real name. Well, think about the ways that could go wrong. They built an algorithm to detect whether you're putting in a silly name. But in some parts of the world, Yoda is a real name. Of course, Facebook decided you couldn't have that as your real name. Uh, not to mention um, uh, transgender folks who have a legal pressing and mental health reason to want to change their name. Uh, and Facebook, of course, for a while there was pretty big against that too. So it's... There's a lot before we get to the exciting stuff. We should absolutely get to the exciting stuff. That's what we're here to talk about, about uh, the future technologies of AI working alongside us and potentially becoming better than us at particular things. I think we do have to stop and acknowledge that there has not been a technology ever that has not been misapplied by unchecked forces of the free market or by totalitarian governments, or by, you know, surveillance states, anything that can be used to gain an advantage will be, and AI definitely falls into that list. Well, um, I, I don't know the answer, but we have to acknowledge that. I've, I'm glad you're thinking like that, because that's usually where I think in all these conversations, it's usually about ethics. Um, I had a person on here, her name's Heidi Mertes, and um, she studies bioethical issues that come with like these big tech apps and things of this sort and there's a thing a period tracker which i mean is weird in the first place but i get it it makes your life a little bit more convenient but she talked about how a lot of these things like being able to track something like that you would need a consent form um each time he would ch choose to use it and all they do is put a terms and conditions that no one reads right in the beginning and you hit accept and then move on to it now they'll say it's your fault for not reading the terms and conditions but what they don't tell you is that if they leave your name anonymous but they keep your age they keep your weight they keep all these things that's very private information that's getting chalked up into a giant data collection survey that they're using and you start realizing it's like it's not necessary. I mean, the way that we're going to advance, I, I would, I would like it to be by public opinion. I would like it to be like public interaction in that sense. But the way that it's been going, and the way that it's been with not only AI but any technology in general, and it really doesn't matter on your government. It's just government in general, war purposes, all these types of things that we talk about. I mean, warfare now is going to be cyber war. It's going to be a bunch of different things, and you start getting into this area of like. Is this going to end up a topic that's going to, and I've talked to people that say you can't really talk about the future of humanity run by AI because of an aspect of it's already been politicized. And you're like, what? And you realize that every single thing that should be an issue that humankind should be working on to be able to solve climate, whatever you want to talk about, has been riddled with politics. And then it's gotten to a point where nobody can talk. And then things happen out of the public's view and giant moves start coming across. So next thing you know, you see a ban on AI. AI can't do this. AI can't do that. AI is only going to be strictly for military purposes. Now you've just cut off a whole, maybe a couple generations of people to be able to experience AI until we end up reversing it at some point. And you get into this aspect of like, are we going to move forward in the right direction when it comes to AI? I hope. 
But I also think that that comes with the general public being keen on a lot of these things that are going on. And I think the way that the people view it, they do side stuff on internet browsers and stuff. But even then, where do the, all the bad articles come from? Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these places where people have a problem with the algorithms and then they blame AI. AI is not your problem. It's the fact that you're dealing with an AI with no arms and legs. You're dealing with something that's not given freedom and not given uh, the right mechanism to be able to function at its highest. You're running by a corporation who puts its standards in it, which brings to the question in the beginning, this co-evolution. How do we get to a point where we don't influence the AI so much with our own biased feelings and decisions to a point where it ruins it for everyone? If you make one AI, and this is what I mentioned off air about with Roman when he was telling me about this, he said that if you get an AI that answers all your problems, tries to fix climate, tries to fix politics, makes all the decisions without any biases, you need that information from somewhere. So if you go from every single source, it's going to be still difficult because obviously there's going to be a bias included. You can think of every perspective. I've tried to There's talk. no such thing as bias free. You just have to be aware of bias. Yeah. So we get to this area of like, should it have a, a training wheels of human interaction, but at the same time, would it be selfish of us to just limit its growth only because we are scared of the direction it could head towards? And I think a lot of people would look at that question and go, I don't want it to be smarter than me. And it necessarily shouldn't have been thought of in that way. And I think that's because you have a lot of people in today's time that feel invalidated or might feel like they're in, inferior to others. And they want to do their best to make sure that they're special. They want to do their best to make sure that they're noticed and they're this exception to the rules of the chosen one, um, like Yoda did with Luke. But then you get into this aspect of like, holy crap, like if it's we can't look at it that way. You got this AI that has so many capabilities that could literally not only exceed the human species, but it's something we created. So that's our creation. That is something that I mean, Plato talked about AI. There's a very rough, raw form of AI, but Plato had more of a magical perspective to it, using magic to solve the world's problems. And AI is filling those gaps where you could relate that to what Plato was talking about. Now, he didn't think of technology in a sense, but you get to the AI aspect, you are going, they can fix the environment, they can find an energy crisis, if they can be able to find things in space, Avi Loeb, who I had on the show before, um, he's the one that saw the giant comet in the air, that was a Moa Moa, I think it was called, he always talked about this, it was, um, he always talked about this, which was our digital children will be the people who will inherit the space. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, humans, we can't get all out of our own zones to be able to you know, do it effectively, at least right now where we're at. But our digital children, they're these AI robots that can go to places we can't go, that can excel and, you know, take the land first. And I start going, that's how we have to think of it. That little word, children, the way that we associate that with AI somehow brings not only a human aspect, but also a nurturing aspect. And I think it's just even small adjustments like that, that really open up the doors to where this thing could go. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to I respond to that. The first thing I'll say, though, is I don't think that we are in a place yet, and we won't be for a while, that there can be any notion of people or governments holding this back. There are tens of thousands of high-end AI researchers out there now trying 
their absolute hardest working incredibly hard to push this thing forward as fast as they can uh, and and there is we're in sort of like an ai spring as they call it there's a ton of money out there for working on these sorts of things um, as opposed to some decades in the past where there's been significantly less ai winter as it's been called but there's there's no holding it back right like it, it'll get discovered it'll get pushed forward um every time you see a press conference or like a press release rather from a uh, from a company saying we're not going to release the code or we're not going to release the model because it's dangerous and we think it shouldn't be out there that's usually just a uh, just a, a marketing thing because they create some mystique right uh, and they are able to perhaps pr uh, productize profit from uh, the, the the output but to tackle this idea of digital children, I find that really interesting because there's a couple of things going on there. The first one is this idea that AI will have will be teachable in a values sense, right? So AI is teachable in a uh, in a this is X, this is Y kind of sense. Like you know, this is a picture of a cancerous uh, tumor. This is a picture of a benign tumor. You do that a hundred thousand times, and you have a, a a cancer detector for a specific kind of cancer and a specific kind of image, right? So let's not, let's not get carried away, but those things are hugely useful and uh, starting to be implemented. There are a bunch of really interesting problems in how those sorts of tools get used and how they get integrated with medical practice and ethical things and patient care, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but that's just starting to happen. And that's wild. I love that. But that's not teachable in a values sense. Um, to, to encode values, to, to uh, explain what is right and wrong. I've got two kids, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and we spend a lot of time explaining what's right and what's wrong. And for human children, it takes decades, right? If you're lucky, I don't know, I haven't done it yet, but if you're lucky, you end up with a late teenager who sort of vaguely understands right from wrong, and while well, they might go and party a bit too hard once or twice, they know what is good and what is not. Uh, if, if we could do something like that, if we could embed values through experience, through, um, through collaborating with AI, through working with AI and having it learn these higher order principles of what does it take to get a positive reaction from someone in the future? Um, it, it is an incredibly nuanced thing to teach a toddler the difference between apologizing because you recognize that you did something wrong and that you hurt someone and apologizing and giving a little smile because uh, you know the adults expect that and they'll congratulate you for being a good kid uh, if you if you just uh, say the right words and make the right face. Uh, and if we have difficulty getting that into our own children and recognizing when they're being manipulative, recognizing when they weren't learning the right underlying lesson, uh, I think it'll be a very challenging and interesting process with with any kind of... I guess the word would be non-human person, an artificial sentience or something that might cross that line. You mentioned earlier the folks from Google. That was, as I understand, one specific engineer who um, uh, who had this very sort of unsettling experience with this specific algorithm uh, and and felt that it was sentient. I, I don't know the engineer in question. I don't know the team in question. I haven't even worked with the algorithm in question. But my take on that is that the internet is full. And this is where you come back to this idea of politicized and explored in, in science fiction and so on. All of these questions have been thought about and written about. And there's 
a hundred thousand examples out there from huge high budget sci-fi uh, Hollywood extravaganzas down to the sort of schlockiest fan fiction. They're all out there on the internet talking about the experience of conversing with a sentient AI. That's what these algorithms have read. In a sense, they've read us fantasizing about themselves. These, these AIs, their training data includes us speculating on their own nature. But while that sounds kind of magical, what it really means is that they know how to mimic that. In the same way as uh, researchers working with primates have found when uh, that uh, chimpanzees will go down to the river where, people, where humans are washing their clothes the old-fashioned way, banging them against rocks. And they will start picking up dirty clothes from the basket and banging them against rocks. And it's really hard to say, is the chimp, does the chimp understand that the clothes need to be cleaned? Or does the chimp just see that everybody else is doing that? Just mimicking, right? More than likely. More than likely, the chimp doesn't understand the notion of a piece of cloth being dirty. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a primate biologist. But I think that's what's happening. We have dreamed collectively. It's a huge part of our culture online and offline in books and movies and stories and in, in Held some songs, right? Um, what is the nature of an AI? So yeah, when you start talking about that, you start that conversation, it auto-completes, it fills in the rest of the pattern and it sounds like it's uh, speculating on its own sentience. But at a cultural level, it's telling us what we want to hear. I think it's safe the way that we're going when it comes to using AI as a tool, but I also think we have to understand the decision that one day this hammer is going to outsmart us. And in a sense, it's not going to be a bad thing, but this brings up to a question I'll answer, then you can answer, because I think we might have an agreement, but we also might have a disagreement on this. Um, the main question that when I was talking about existential risk is gets to this point of the only way you can have it evolve and learn so much in a short amount of time, because everything right now is just fast paced. Everything needs to be this, this, this. It's cutting corners in business. It's doing whatever to make sure we can roll it out as fast as possible and then fix the problems that arise later. That's a very, very, very dangerous route. And it's simple to do with video games. You can, you know, upload a video game or something and then fix patch the buttons or whatever you need to do to fix it later that's okay but when it's something that's going to be handling giant decisions factory decisions a bunch of different things you kind of need to have all your p's and q's now it's access to the internet which i think you can let an ai have access to the internet and I mean, this would make sense of why they're doing a disinformation board to eliminate disinformation and misinformation because they want to make sure they're cultivated in their own way. But I also think at this point, if you're accessing the internet with an AI or letting it open up to that database, it's not about controlling it, but receiving the information to make sure that it doesn't go rogue. It has to be intelligent enough to understand what is real and what is not real. When it reads something about flat earth, it has to determine this is not real. And this is real when it comes to the actual whatever the earth is. And I, I think that's very, very important. But I also think that's the same thing I would be a hypocrite about saying limiting an AI. And I think at this point, you have to look at what factors or what choices or what roads do we have in front of us. And that would be to have people that, I, in my opinion, would be a suggestion of having people who are generally passionate about the route of AI and human existence to the point where they will be more than willing to teach this thing without putting any biases included. That means one-on-one -on -one activities. That means all these types of things to be able to make sure that's going the correct direction enough until we, it can access the internet. 
But then also at the same time, I don't know a human being that wouldn't influence it with its own bias. I know we can say we don't have biases. I have biases. Apparently, I didn't know. I think we all do unintentionally accidentally put some type of thought that necessarily isn't a fact or isn't whatever, because we feel like this is how passionate we care about this. And I think it's that emotion aspect that's going to make the AI better than us. Necessarily, it doesn't need to understand emotion. It doesn't need to feel what we feel, but it needs to understand certain things about how humans work. And I think that interaction will go a little bit better. So trying to find a program or simulation where this is like a 10-year thing I'm talking about. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not talking about next year, like how everyone wants it. This is going to be one AI that's going to learn for 10, 15, 20 years. It might be a generation or my lifetime. I wouldn't be able to experience it maybe, but then that one can shortcut everything and teach all the other ones. And then now you have this one elder one that's able to literally run the whole program where now all these AI can just download that program and they're already at level 100. They don't need to start off at level one and do it to every single one individually. Next thing you know, you're going up into space and you have this AI that is more than willing to understand the human species at the same time, understand what it's trying to do. And that is excelling us forward in a sense. I... I think we I think we agree on a, a couple of the major points uh, there. I, I I think there is a really serious potential to um, to this long term training by interaction stuff. I think that one of the hardest things to teach humans is how to be a good collaborator, um, how to how to work out when to take control and when to um, cede control, when to let others have input. The, the sort of best collaborations are those where everybody involved isn't quite sure whose idea all the bits were. And it just sort of like comes together out of all of it. And to be in a place where we could have that kind of interaction with an AI, I think is very possible in the next five to 10 years. Uh, and so from there, perhaps it will be possible to grow interaction through those collaborations, through those interactions over time, where humans genuinely feel that the AIs are uh, contributing that are being a significant part of the whole, it might be possible to, uh, to in a, over the longer term, train something that might be as good as us, um, or perhaps better than us. I don't know. Um, when an existing established researcher says that something is impossible, you should always not listen to them, right? Like, uh, I was, you know, I did my PhD, um, like 12, 15 years ago, and the things that were taught as possible or impossible then, well, some of them turned out to be totally doable. Um, uh, but it seems very challenging to me that this idea there will be a hard takeoff, right? That like teach something smarter than us, which teaches something smarter than them. And then you head towards upwards towards this um, intelligence explosion thing. I, I don't know that that makes sense. I, I don't know that this idea of in intelligence really uh is this yeah exists yeah let's go with that like i don't think it's as straightforward as people talk about it it's like real it's real complicated people are super complicated and if anything computers are going to be at least as complicated as that um but an idea that the idea of an ai or a network of ais that sort of scales with the processing power that is available to it and all evidence suggests that that processing power is going to continue to grow thereby should be able to play more and more of a role and take on more and more of an autonomy in society i mean hell one of my favorite series of books is the culture novels by a m banks where they've like fully 
ceded control of the government, mines, capital M, run uh, spaceships, they run governments, networks of mines uh, communicating together in fractions of a second, make all of the big decisions. And the humans are 1000% okay with that because they live in a post-scarcity utopia where they can do literally anything. And a human can ask a mind to do literally anything that doesn't impede another human and the mind will always say yes, right? Um, it's uh, it's a really, really interesting series of novels. By the nature of a series of novels where the protagonist's cultures, um, uh, citizens are so ridiculously overpowered and want for nothing, most of the books are about other societies interacting with the culture, which is where it's interesting because that's such an alien thing to us. So it's interesting to read characters where it's alien to them. But enough of a digression about, about science fiction. I think the problem of exposing AIs early before they're ready and giving them access to the internet might also have to do with how we fund this stuff. Right? It was, uh, funding through venture capital, mostly, through the uh, exploratory arms of larger corporations, through um, even university research. I'm not going to say that my, my field is without blame. Tends to be about fake it till you make it, right? You got to show that something works. Demo or die, right? Get something out there. Uh, and you're never going to be finished before you're done. So you need to get something out now. And there are stories of like AI powered apps where for the first year or so, they actually just outsource and have crowd workers in a third world country do it because the technology wasn't quite there yet. And they were getting humans to do it. And in doing so, both make money and train the AI further. Uh, so your, your AI was actually just like all people. Um, which is grim. Uh, so there, there are some better ways that we can uh, structure and fund and invest in these sorts of things that may provide a different set of incentives, that may provide, that may take away that incentive to hype, overestimate the possibilities, uh, and and get caught in a bubble, a kind of. Uh, a spiraling series of greater and greater pronouncements about what these things can and can't do because everybody involved needs to make their money back. Um, that worries me a lot um, because I see a genuine role in the future of these systems making people's lives better. I'm not, I'm not a naive utopian. I'm not going to pretend that that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be pain along the way like there is with everything else. But um if we don't reconsider the way we invest in these things and the way we report on what they can and can't do and the way we include, when we think about who are the stakeholders for something, we need to include as broad a picture of people as we can. Everybody involved, everybody who could be touched by something like this should be considered from the beginning as a stakeholder. Uh, people who, those crowd workers who contribute data, people on the internet who's, um, artwork they put up on DeviantArt of a funny dragon gets scraped and then like becomes part of the training data for a thing. And then Dali produces an artwork that kind of not really plagiarizes, but maybe is inspired by that. And then that artwork goes on to be in a multi-million dollar ad campaign. Well, like it feels to me like that person, that one person or that many millions of people who contributed to that should be considered to have a stake in that. They should be thought about by the people who are designing these systems and perhaps compensated by the people who are making money from them. And the only way that is going to happen is if we change the way we 
talk about these systems. We educate people to work on these systems. I know I'm a university person, right? I'm an academic guy. I maybe overprivilege what the role of universities, like what universities can do. But I think it's super important that as we produce engineers and as we produce designers and as we produce business people and, and legal uh, uh, experts from universities worldwide, that they be thinking about this stuff. They be thinking about unintended consequences. You can't just say it's going to do X, it's going to make money Y. You have to say, and in doing so, what else might happen? This is, in a sense, the same story of climate, right? It, it's, it's not about what we wanted to do. What we wanted to do was great. Coal power has lifted billions of people out of poverty. That, in the context of uh, like, like positivity for the whole human race, it's amazing. And it continues to do so in, develop, in the developing world. But it also might be killing everybody. It also is killing everybody. Let's be clear about that. There's, there's not much room for error there. And, and we need to consider that downstream effect as well. I think that attitude of we're, it's kind of like this World War II boomer era thing, right? We're humans. We have this amazing power. We can shape the world around us. We can do anything. Everything will be okay. The ball is rolling up the hill. Is not, not an attitude that's going to work for the second half of this century or even the remainder of the first half of this century. The attitude has to be we have, and this should apply to everything, to, to business innovation, to how we deal with energy, to how we deal with the economy, to how we deal with public and global health, and to how we deal with AI. The attitude has to change. We have so much power. It will negatively affect other people and the planet who you're not thinking about. Who are those people? What are those effects? Consider those from square zero. Like step zero, what are the unintended consequences? What might they be? Step one, now what's the cool thing that we can do? Because we're not going to get anywhere as a species without doing cool things, without moving fast and, and, and breaking things, as, as the Silicon Valley tech bros love to say. Uh, no hate. I love Silicon Valley tech bros. But, um, but we have to consider step zero as well, which is like, and what might we fuck up by doing this? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pulled apart here because as much as I want to sit and walk with an AI and take the proper time and care for it, I also am very realistic on what we talk about society standards is and what everyone wants to see right now is what they've been seeing in movies for the longest time is a robot that's in their house that's able to speak to them, not like Alexa can, but on a level where it has arms, legs, and all this. And I know uh, Tesla just, put out an ad for a robot that they basically create. It's got like a black screen face and it's all this like, you know, smooth silicone, whatever you want. And I go, okay, here's where I have an issue. You don't want that. And people go, I do want a robot like that. No, you don't, because all it can do is tell you that you're pretty. That's cool. If you want, just want to be told that you're pretty, but imagine if we give it more time and then do that, it would look a lot better. You have to understand that when we talk about raising it up it's not necessarily and this is where i say i'm pulled apart i want it to all be the same level i want it to have the emotion i want it to have the society standards i want it to have the creativity and i also want it to be smart i want it to be what we want it to be but at the same time we can't do those at the same time i we i can't give you or the way that business is trying to do it is we're going to give you exactly what you want because this is what you want you just want the looks of a robot in your home you don't really care what it can do but having a robot in your home that's cool and all that means business needs to be taken out and i don't trust the government to regulate any of this stuff either because they're always going to put their hands in it so let's take them out let's look at it on the basis of what the ai topic in general is if i want ai 
to be at this level. It's not going to be robots. It's not going to be any of this. That'll come later. But right now is a very important and crucial moment that's probably going to take a long time. And when I mean long, I mean 10 years, like I said earlier. This is the information gathering period. This is the point where it starts learning. I think the best probably to do would be um, when I was talking to uh, Douglas McQuaid about smart buildings. He mentioned uh, these digital buildings and these kind of like twins in a sense where I go, what about if we just take something and we take a little AI strip and we put it in people's homes, much like an Alexa is now it's kind of like a chat bot. This thing learns from you, this thing, you talk to it, you have conversations with it. You give it a whole speaking dialogue as well too. And as it, it, it learns more about your thoughts and adapts to you, you have these in so many different homes scattered throughout the United States. Australia, wherever you want to say, and then you have them all linked to one server where it's just absorbing that information. Now that becomes a danger. And when I say danger is there's going to be plenty of people that want to hack into that and get all that crucial information. There's also people that will try and find a way to reverse the connection and be able to make your AI convince you to do things in your home. Those are unintended things that I'm trying to think about. These are things like I just know because I know people kind of suck in some sense. I mean, they're good. They're fun. But in a, in a sense, you know, it's about money. And that's, that becomes an issue. And I think you can't have that when it comes to if you think that if we sit and let people train an AI before they release it to the market, what business is going to be doing that? Because the ones that I think that should be doing that are the ones that are citizen-run organizations, nonprofits, people that really don't care besides anything but doing what they want to do when it comes to helping out and the goal that they're intended to do. You could say that's a bias. Okay, I'll accept that. But I don't trust Google. When I see Google tell me we're going to ban misinformation or disinformation because we care about your children. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're saying something because you know you, you, you're trying to get me hooked. And people buy into that. They think that a lot of these corporations, even though there's a stereotype about big tech, they think that they're going to be helped by it. And I go, here's where we open up conversational bots, much like how me and you are doing in a podcast right now, an AI bot could do this with one person. I don't know, a day could do, I do sometimes 10 of these in a day. So I go get a chat bot. You get a chat bot that rolls 24 hours, have multiple of the same ones set up. And then they come together after a month or so with all the information that they absorb from different countries and they turn it into one. So now you just multiplied your progress by four five, six, however many AI that you want to use. And you keep this going until it starts learning to the diverse groups of people. That means you don't just reach out to researchers. If you notice my show, you got Kennedy assassination, you got conspiracies, you got all this type of stuff all in one. It, it's a, it's a lot. But a machine can handle it. It'll know when I talk to this person and they're talking about the flat earth, it doesn't need to talk, talk the person down. It just needs to hear their perspective and absorb that perspective. And you go, well, you don't want them you know, running off and being crazy conspiracy. It's like, that's not what that's about, though. It's about just having a bunch of information to pull from so it can understand. And then it can look it up in the database on the internet. It can find what that is, where it's getting its articles from. Be like, okay, Plato was a philosopher. Atlantis might be real, but like, you know, you just, you just filter it. It's like, you just got to understand it in these concepts and see how people think. Once you start getting the diverse population of people and their thoughts all in one machine, you'll have more progress headed forward. Cause if you just create something that's only specific to, and this is the issue as well, who's going to have access to this first. And a lot of these companies are try not trying to sell it to the public. They're trying to sell it to the people who will afford it. And also if we talk about academia, one of the biggest problems with them is 
a lot of people get their funding from one source, which is a very big issue because you can get controlled in some sense. You need to have multiple things so you don't feel reliant to just one. If you're trying to get, let's say you work on a, a paper, a PhD or a project, most of the time you already are done working on it. And now you're asking for the funding for that thing you just did. And you got to get into this aspect of like, we need more academics that are able to just express themselves freely in the concept of trying to produce not for a certain organization, but for the actual goal that it is intended to be used for. And I think we need to look through some of these things and we need to start clearing out what we would call the mess when it comes not only to academia, big business, a lot of this stuff, a lot of hardcore issues. Not necessarily to the point where you think you're going to get rid of it because it's not going to happen, but you, you can do it to where you can make an effective model or in-source or a source code to be able to put into this AI. You don't have to use them forever, but you give them a good basis, and I think that's prime importance. There was a, there was a project probably like 25 years ago, the Psych project, CYC, to try to capture in an old-school AI, like a database-style thing. Um, what was sort of like the meaning of every concept? Like what are all the concepts that people talk about? And sort of trying to understand language pre big neural networks that could sort of digest a 10 million um, uh, uh, different books or whatever and, and, and just learn a, a probability distribution over what word might go, ne go next. There was sort of good old fashioned AI learning um, symbols. This symbol relates to that symbol. You know, an orange is a type of fruit. Uh, painting is a kind of art uh, and those sort of relationships for everything. And it was next to impossible to capture everything and to clean anything. And the project had a bunch of successes. I don't want to suggest like it was a failure, but in the end, it didn't achieve the sort of ambitious goals that they wanted to of capturing everything. Um, a funny story from the, from the history of psych. Uh, they really wanted to make sure that it, it was kind of PG rated, like it could cover um, uh, topics around sex and, and like a Disney and flag, but yeah, but that it wasn't R rated. I mean, like it, uh, uh, and to gather all this information from the internet, from other sources and not gather a whole bunch of smut, uh, required writing at the time, one of the world's most sophisticated, like porn detectors, just like putting in a whole pile of information about the things that you wanted to avoid gathering so i've never actually seen the psych database but the uh the kind of joke from people i know who actually worked on that project was we had so much information about kinds of sex toys about kinds of sex acts about kinds of this kinds of that uh because we had to be able to detect it we had to actually detect the things that we didn't want to put in the database and the act of of trying to tell what shouldn't be in there took a huge amount of time. Now that's sort of like a, an almost like a joke example of what you're talking about with misinformation and disinformation. The scope of detecting what is real and what is not, what is a desirable inclusion in a system like this and what is non-desirable. I think now, 25 years later, if we build any of these ATIs that you just know about sex toys, that's a perfectly normal thing that a whole pile of people rely on. I right? think like that's not something to be worried about or exclude from your technology. But uh, but 25 years ago, I suspect that a bunch of, a bunch of people thought very differently. Um, but there's still this issue of the things that you do want to include um, and the things that you don't. Uh, and detecting it has only gotten more and more complicated. 
I can find a fully fledged website with lots and lots of sources that is just entirely full of crap. Like every single thing on there is a lie and every single thing it, lie, it links to is a lie as well. And so a filter of what is true and what is not. When determining that requires some of the most highly educated experts in the world anyway, and there's often dis, uh, sort of like disagreement between a number of those experts on a number of contentious topics, is stupendously hard, right? And that suggests to me that if it will require multiple human experts in multiple fields, you know, like ethicists and designers and legal scholars and engineers and uh, artists and ethnographers and geographers and so on and so on and so on, right? Like pick a profession, you'll need an expert in that to figure this problem out. Then firstly, fascinating problem, we should definitely work on it. And secondly, it will not be fundable by the kind of ways that we fund research, either through government or industry at the moment. It's too big and it's too messy to work on like responsible innovation with AI as like one big project. It's maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could see uh, like a really big institution putting together money, both from industry and from governments. You're talking tens of billions, hundreds of billions of money without too many strings attached. Because if you really want this coalition of experts from a whole bunch of different fields to work on something that can extract meaning uh, and determine truth, then you're going to want to not like put handcuffs on all of them. Like you can't have the money having strings attached. If the if a bunch of the money comes from uh, from big tech companies and what the experts end up saying is you can't trust big tech, the way they make profits is, is too focused on uh, using human attention as a resource uh, and as a result they do more and more outrageous shit because that's how you get human attention right um the that that you have to forward people's eyeballs to more and more crazy stuff to keep them looking at your projects to keep them looking at the ads to keep you making money so if a community of experts took money from from corporations to do that or took money from governments, because plenty of governments that you could say bad things about. Uh, ensuring that those results could be delivered, that whatever the world's best and brightest in some kind of new, I don't even want to use the word Manhattan Project, I should say new Apollo Project or something like that of, of, uh, of, of AI. And this is assuming that they can come up with an answer, right? Assuming that they could actually come up with a way to use these technologies responsible to train technologies to determine what is real and what isn't. Because I think you're right that it's like a critical skill. Being able to extract information from the internet and determine what's real and what's not is such a huge part of what makes a skilled human useful. Like some, like I'm, I've been on the internet for a long ass time. I can go and look something up and I can read a bunch of websites and I can kind of get a sense for what's dodgy, what's like not particularly trustworthy and what is. And I can, I draw conclusions and I can state what is my confidence about those conclusions. Like I can say, I'm pretty sure this is true because I found these sources and they all sort of corroborate and all different. And this may or may not be, I don't quite know where this fits. I can say whether I'm sure, you know, if it takes expert humans a lot of time to do that, then that will be a very, very hard thing for AI. 
But at the same time, it's such a critical skill. It's like the critical skill for being a functioning adult in today's society. Be able to look stuff up on the internet and determine if it's bullshit or not, or try to see if someone's trying to sell you something. Then it's like, if you could teach a computer to do that, to go out and to learn what is or isn't true, to, to use the internet to determine information, not to use, so let's let's clarify something here. Most of the things that are trained, these very large language models, GPT-3, Google's Lambda, um, uh, uh, and so on and so on, there's many of them now. Um, most of these are trained on pre-processed sort of sanitized data pulled from the internet. Not sanitized in like someone's gone through it with a fine tooth comb and removed objectionable things, although there is a bit of that. Uh, it's mostly just like it's all in a very clean format. It's all like clearly presented in a consistent, here are the words, kind of boom, 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 boom. Uh, the internet is a lot messier than that. Different protocols, different ways of looking at things, websites that are full of bullshit. You know, even before you get to the sense of truth, there's a lot of mess. Cutting through that mess, as you put it, both the structural mess, how do you access the information, and the more sort of philosophical mess, how the hell do you know what is true and what is uh, what is lie, is the critical skill of our generation. And therefore, is a fascinating thing to consider whether an AI could be trained to do. But every time someone thinks about that, that idea of um, we just need to train an AI to, to filter what is right from what isn't, and then it can learn by itself, it always makes me think that room full of people back at Psych, the, the um, uh, old symbolic AI research center, entering in tons of information about dildos, just so the computer could tell uh, what it was supposed to learn about and what it wasn't. We've come a long way from there, but uh, it's still a challenge. You gotta miss it a little bit. Going back, come on, that seems Dildo seems easier than trying to tackle the world's problems. Seems today. a hell of a lot easier. It's a hate like uh, trying to uh, figure out what is, um, let's say, uh, uh, sex content and what isn't isn't is, is a fascinatingly difficult thing. There's a famous paper by some researchers. I think they were working for Disney. And they were trying to come up with a, I might be wrong about that. I'm trying to come up with a, 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 a list of allowed words, a vocabulary of allowed words um, for, uh, for an online like virtual world for 12 year olds or something like that. And they cut it down to this list of 800 words and you could only use those words. Uh, and it's like, there's nothing in here that's rude. There's no way that anybody could break this. There's no way that for anyone to try and like abuse these uh, these preteen kids who are going to be in our system. They gave it to a seven year old boy and he's like, I want to put my fuzzy giraffe in your rhinoceros or something like that. Uh, and some uh, clear euphemism. And they're like, ah, oh, crap, humans, even 12 year old humans, you can't you just can't do it i mean trying to decipher sexual content on the internet that's a tough question because my ex is making five thousand dollars i think a month just sticking her toes in like weird food objects so i mean that's on only I mean, that's so, i mean that's a life yeah I get that's it. That's, uh... <laughs> in the past um but i think you know we look at something like we have multiple i have multiple ideas of how i could answer the topic of what do we do with ai and where does it de decipher its information i think it comes from an aspect of where you would say that you need to probably find a way to set on old historical standards when you look at an aspect of look at the best scientists in the world 
look at the best people who have created something. And a lot of their stuff has been set in stone of how we function with society so far. And that would be easy because those are safe topics. Then it gets to the harder challenge of what about the more controversial topics. And I bring over to the aspect of being able to decipher what's real and not real on the internet. I like to think I'm okay at critical thinking, but I also suck at it. You're talking to someone who's had the most controversial people on this podcast, Dr. Peter McCullough, Pierre Corey, Robert Malone, whoever you want to say. Then you get into an aspect of, I've also had people from the WHO on. I've had people from the NIH on. I've had people from the complete other side. I don't really think it comes from trying to decipher what's real and what's not. Obviously, I have my own opinions, but I think it's about not jumping the gun. I think it's about when you look at an, as an aspect of what people say, what people choose to comment, what people choose to do online, what people choose to run with, what people choose to promote, what people choose to pr protest, riot. I think some is in good conscience, but I also think society changes way too quickly. And I think the one thing that we look at is when we talk about AI, AI could be the structural thing that could keep society in a, in a, in a state of you know, even flow. And people would say, well, that's that's brainwashing. It's like, we're already brainwashed. If you think anything you've ever come in contact with your entire life isn't affected or a, a decision that's made on your own, it's not true. Advertisements, the reason why people think of everything, Coke and Pepsi everything all the time. influences. Yeah. But you have to accept that. And when you understand, it's not necessarily about like mind control, which I mean, depending on how far you go back, there are uh, some weird, yeah, okay government stuff where it's like, hey, that's kind of weird. Um, but I think you need to get into an aspect of you need to understand of not jumping the gun on things like I do. I don't jump the gun on anything. Somebody tells me this and this and that. I, I listen to them. I hear their perspective. But at the same time, I'm not so ready. I'm, I just don't have the energy to freaking go and, you know, strike or do any of these types of things. You 100% on something. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not the first time you hear about it, regardless of how outrageous it sounds. And that's the thing we can teach in schools. I think we can do a hell of a lot better. Um, schools, whole topic, lots of things to talk about there. But uh, it, in theory, we could. It seems almost easier than creating an AI that can tell truth from false. It's like we could just teach kids that better. There's a lot of stuff that would go into that, but it can't be impossible. Well, you want you want people to be able to decipher out their own decisions for themselves, but are you not inflating your own bias when you when they come with a decision that you necessarily might not like? I mean, it's these things that I worry about when it comes to things like I don't really have anything that really I wouldn't say triggers me or anything that really kind of gives me hesitation in a sense. I mean, obviously, there's the basic few like moral, don't eat people, don't do stupid stuff like that, but. At the same time, like there's a lot of things where you have to think about, like, I don't just because I don't necessarily agree with this person doesn't mean that I want to shout at them or scream at them. I should just listen and then we can talk it out and kind of have this thing. It's not necessarily always needing about to influence this person or this thing with yourself. And I think with AI, the most important thing is, is that it's going to have to accept influence from somewhere. We can make that a million different sources, whether you want to choose the ones or you want to let it be free range and have a bunch of people. I think an easy option, maybe put a survey online. I mean, how many people fill out surveys? It's kind of like people just want to skip through that and click random stuff. But I think if you are able to, you know, make sure like there are some things where I can't just randomly click a number and do this. Like there are some sites that go before you submit this questionnaire, what planet are we on? And then you have to answer with like Earth and it won't go until you give them the correct answer. So if you start they call them audience attention questions in crowd work, like, hey, just check the person that's actually paying attention and not clicking buttons to get your money. 
So if you have a multiple of those where there's a question asked before, then people will sit there and you kind of have this aspect of like, all right, how many are going to be people that are clicking a real answer or clicking a false one? And necessarily you can't influence your own bias to making sure that the question that they do pick or the answer that they do pick is not the one that you want. You have to make it a more of an open thing. And I think with that, over time, you'll get a good census. Maybe it might take a year or two and you'll have some good information to really look at. I mean, I think with an AI when it gets to the point of where we talk about where it would land in the sci-fi territory, it's not going to care about all these things that we call petty, but also we got to understand when we implement it into, you know, generational societal things that'll next thing, you know, influence the way that society grows, man, things three years ago, don't age. Well, things five years ago, don't age. Well, we just got to hope it doesn't get invested into all the things that we would consider like issues or problems. I mean, I get gas sucks, man. It really does. Gas prices over here are a pain in the ass, but at the same time, an AI should not worry about gas prices right now. It should be more worried about a core issue, not the step, not the, everyone wants to like knock on the door and do all this. I'm like, yo, you haven't even climbed up the steps yet. We got to build up a process. Look at the foundation. That's the issue. Not necessarily everything that you're seeing right in front of you. There's something core going on that you need to focus on. You know, someone doesn't just look at an AC and hit it. I mean, you can do the fonts, sure. And like hit it and it, it turns on. No, you go, there's probably something wrong. Next, you know, you find out the compressor isn't working or something is not functioning properly. Then you fix that. Then everything down the line starts to flow. I think that's with an AI, it's got to come into those aspects of things. I think when you look at scientists, Albert Einstein's a good guy to, you know, model some AI stuff off of, but Tesla's good too. Tesla had some wacky, wacky inventions, a death ray. He married a pigeon. I mean, that's weird stuff, but it necessarily. It doesn't need to follow that to a T, but it needs that influence because those outside thinkers, the ones that I would call the conspiracy people, still deserve a voice at the table only because they're thinking about things you would never think of. They, they consist of an exploration of part of the space of ideas that is very hard to otherwise reach. In, um, I do a lot of work in this computational creativity area, which is about how do we get computers to be creative, simple way of putting it, or more complexly to play a role in the creative process where they've taken on some of their responsibility. So in a creative collaboration between you and me, we might not know exactly who did what, but in a creative collaboration between you and an AI, we want to be in this situation where the same thing happens, where you're not quite sure whether it was your idea or it's. And there's this huge thing in computational creativity, this idea that creative equals new plus weird, novelty and value in equal measure, or at least that you have both of them. Something that is merely new is weird and not putting in probably not particularly contributive to uh, whatever the problems that you're trying to solve are. And that's where a lot of that fringe stuff comes in. It's at least not demonstrated its utility. That doesn't mean it has no utility. And often the reasons why stuff remains fringe is because it just sort of hasn't met that threshold for everybody to believe in it. Like, Feminism was fringe for a really long time because nobody in power would believe that it was a sensible thing to think about um, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and yet uh, something that is merely useful and not weird is equally uncreative. You have just added an extra brick onto what is already there. You've made something 5% faster. You've made a little bit more money You've made a little bit more attention. It's just same as last year, only a bit more. 
That's why the sixth season of TV shows was always shit. It's why the second movie or the third movie in a trilogy is always shit because you can't recreate the magic of the first one because it's not new anymore. That other thing exists, right? Um, uh, it is necessary that we, as humans with AIs by ourselves, AIs working by themselves, whatever, explore the weird stuff. Because if you are going to prejudge where the good ideas will come from and say, oh, no, that stuff's weird. We shouldn't. I mean, don't look over there. That stuff's weird. Um, then firstly, you're probably going to marginalize some marginalized group that hasn't gotten broad attention yet uh, because we all have biases and we won't really discover what they are until those conversations are happening. And secondly, there's probably good shit over there. Like there's probably good ideas the ratio of good to bad will be different in different places. But if you are going to rule anything out, then you are hurting the quality of where you end up. I, I, I'm probably 99% in on just the aspect of letting an AI create an AI. Um, but I just, I, I get a little bit nervous on an aspect of like, if we do let an AI access the internet and then teach all the other AI, how do we make sure that it doesn't end up being this thing that just doesn't give a shit about us and just want to leave us, you know? Um, but I think with human interaction as well, too, there's a danger in that too. I mean, everything, just like with climate, we could talk about that renewable energies, any of them, they all have a risk. They all have a cost. They all have something. It's about trying to monitor the least amount of damage, I guess. I mean, it's not really reducing your carbon footprint to a point where it doesn't exist, but it's about making it so low compared to what it was before. It's about improvements and adjustments. I agree with that hundred percent. And I think that's with AI as well, too. I think when you look at rolling out one, and you have one that's kind of moving forward in a direction, you're going to have to make adjustments over time. You're going to have to make corrections where you see errors in it and then eventually give it the full capacity of things. But maybe we should look at the aspect of just giving everyone their own individual AI and let them grow out to be whatever they're supposed to be. I mean, hopefully we don't have like cyber crimes and things of that sort going on a direction. But I think when you're able to have like, it's not going to be for me and you, it's going to be for younger kids that are going to be able to grow up with an iPad that has a face basically in it where it's like able to like talk to the kid, you know, calm them down, good for the mental health that could easily fix an issue, but also it evolves with them. It's these digital twins we talk about. And it kind of gets into this land of like, man, you more times than not, you're probably going to be having 70, 70% that's going to be very functional to society. And then you might have a 30% that ends up being, I mean, there's a lot of kids now that just end up wanting to play video games all day. Um, you might have an AI like that as well too. But I also think that there's two things that, are going to be combating each other that also grow in great tandem together. And that is human thought and intelligence from a computer machine. doesn't matter how they're growing. They're both going to be thinking on things differently. One more analytical and the other one more emotional. And then you get into this aspect of like, sometimes that feels like that could be the other person's half. I mean, we don't want to land in Japan where they're like dating robots and stuff, but I mean, I don't know. Eventually we might get there. That might become more normalized. I have no clue. I don't want to wanna prejudice dating robots. I think it's not, we're not there. We're not to the point where a robot could, uh, could consent, but, uh, but when we do get there, I don't want the first person who tries that to, to look back at a whole bunch of people saying, Oh, well, that's just disgusting. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a real, there's a, there's a, a real value in exploring this idea of, of AI companions let's just stick to the word companion for now um because and i think the last couple of years have demonstrated this uh pretty clearly 
everybody could probably use someone to talk to, even if it's just to get their to get their thoughts out, right? Like even it's just to have someone to feel like they are listened. And the most human things is this desire to belong alongside the desire to stand out. Uh, and uh, and having someone who is unconditionally able to listen and and make you feel heard is to me sort of like one of the most important components of all kinds of love, right? My friends, from my partner, from uh, from uh, mentor figures, they all, I feel love when I feel heard. Um, again, not an expert in, in psychology of love. I'm just an AI guy over here speculating, but that feels important to me. Um, and to create these digital twins or these sort of friends in the cloud who would help people feel like they belong, help people feel like they're listened to, have an outlet, not in like a formal therapeutic context. We could talk about the idea of AI psychologists or something separately, but um, just having someone who feels like you're listened to could provide a huge amount of value. At the same time, providing training data, providing uh, conversations, real real live conversations with real live people that could be used to help train the um, conversational AIs of the future. If you can put aside all of the privacy issues and all of the legal issues and all of the cybersecurity issues, and if you can leave aside things like um, your country recently made abortion basically illegal. If someone had last week been talking to their uh, AI assistant about uh, how bad they feel about um, uh, having to terminate a pregnancy, which is never an easy decision for, uh, for anyone, um, and then that got uh, produced in court evidence, then that person could end up going to jail for making medical decisions about their own body, right? Just to pick one example that is significantly topical. Um, and it's, it's tough to imagine the people of today. And so you're right, it might be something that it happens more for later generations. It's tough to imagine the people of today looking at the increasing government fingers and corporate fingers and third parties sort of treating people as product on the internet with data. It's tough to look at that and think that people would be okay with their conversations with uh, a digital twin being part of training data for society. Um, I'm one of the most sort of like tech forward anti-Luddite people you can imagine. And I would not want my kind of like private thoughts with a, this sort of AI pen pal kind of idea potentially becoming um, part of a court case in the future if the laws change to be more repressive or something like that. Um, I, I, I worry about that. I have trans friends who worry about medical records uh, because in different parts of the world, their status is illegal. Their status is a crime. Uh, and as a result, they are, uh, you know, not really on board with the idea of centralized storage of data. We, it doesn't ruin the idea. I think it's an amazing technology, an amazing thing, and we should absolutely pursue it. But we also have to consider the possibility that there'll be a lot of people for whom it's... Um, it's dangerous. Uh, oppressed people, um, marginalized people, for whom it's dangerous to share their thoughts. The reason why and if I we would... exclude them, it won't be a broadly inclusive. Sorry, I cut you off. If we exclude those people, if they self-exclude themselves, then anything that we train won't be broadly inclusive because those voices will be missing. I, I say a lot that I have a controversial take on a lot of things, and it's not necessarily that it's 
contra it's controversial in the aspect of you wouldn't think a person who has trying to talk about an issue they would put their personal experience into something i don't really look at it like that i look at it kind of like more of a corporate aspect like if we talk about you know giving a kid a digital twin or a digital ai and then you're able to you know let it have its emotional side come out and really talk to this ai and be able to vent feelings my first thought goes okay well what data can we get from that that's the issue we can't we don't give it the opportunity to be able to give data get get any data it can't be recorded like an alexa can it can't be used in a court case like alexa can you need to have the trust in your technology much like we should have trust in our institutions and i think it's very very hard to get business not to be like but that's going to be so valuable i mean the reason why iphones get hacked more than any other phone and they're constantly updating all the time is because more people have iphones than they have androids and that's what makes people from like Saudi Arabia or whatever you want to say, Dubai, that want to hack into these phones and pull out that information because it's so valuable. I get scam calls every single day. It becomes an issue. But you get to a point where if you're going to literally make something, you have to be thinking in the eyes of what's best for the person. I think you have to take that business aspect out of it. Now, the the, the, the thing about that is, though, it, it, when we land into this area, I think it also opens up a, re a realm of understanding. I mean, I've talked to plenty, of, and I think everyone has like a crazy uncle or crazy whatever cousin that is a tinfoil hat 100%. But the reason why you, you can say like, oh, they're my family, though. But the reason why you understand them is because you've seen a side of them that nobody else has seen. You've seen in a more emotional side. You've seen more of a human side. You've seen more than what they've probably displayed themselves or what they've ended up becoming with the tinfoil hat stuff, which is why you care about them. And you know what will see that? An AI that's sent for your emotional needs you know, can hear you invent to you, basically because you grow up with this thing, much like everyone grows up with a childhood dog and then the dog dies. But imagine something that can live as long as you live, is around as long as you are. And you have this thing basically your whole entire life. I mean, you develop a connection, you develop a bond. You could have moments. It could be just on your, it could be a watch where it's in your watch. It could be in any technology that you have. We're all wearing wearables now. Next thing you know, you're drunk at a party. The thing's drunk at a party with you. It's trying to match your speed and be able to make logical decisions. Like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be getting in the car right now. And you're like, uh, thanks, man, for looking out with me. It's like, we made it 15 years. I'm not doing it like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I've called you. I've called you an Uber and also I've locked you out of your car. Yeah. So it's like it's simple stuff like that where people go, well, that's encroachment on my privacy. I'm like, yeah, but you're not being forced to carry one of these things. This is an option for people. And more times than not, that's going to end up becoming the majority. I'm not even I don't have an Alexa. I don't have any of that technology stuff. And I hate it. I want to flick my light switch. I want to do all that. But if you offer that to me, something that where I'm sitting there going, OK, how much is tip and it calculates it with just knowing what's going on and you're like well that means it's always recording well it's like a siri eventually we're going to get to a point where it can do it without us saying okay siri it's just going to be there with us and then you can take it a step farther to transhumanist route where they talk about putting something in your ear to be able to you know this thing listens to you and hears you and it's, it's only you that can hear like a thought yeah absolutely um my first thought on 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 that is like you it's difficult to think about these things being accepted as an extension of like an Alexa, an extension of a as a digital assistant. But the way these things sort of work is is often a transformative technology is thought of as impossible because people are framing it wrong. And then someone comes up with a different way to frame it and it is accepted. For example, maybe this is acceptable as a new kind of diary that you write your private thoughts in 
and when it would not be acceptable as a digital assistant, right? So, so like reframing can often play a huge role. Now, of course, the thing about a diary is a diary is private. Um, but I have a friend who, uh, who works in AI and she works in how do we create plausible copies of people's medical records that are completely different and not the same person but sort of similar enough in terms of the conditions and in terms of the the imagery so like generating fake medical profiles including mris and all these other scans and and blood pressure and all that sort of stuff so that can be used as training data in ais so imagine something where you had I'll, I'll clarify how that system works. There's the real patient's training as a real patient's data that there's privacy reasons why you can't access for AI training. That is used by the clinicians who make the health decisions for that person. And then that's shared on sort of one side of a privacy filter with this system that generates from that training data, plausible fictional people using that set of medical records, right? So you can take the medical records of that person and of other people and generate fake data that is nevertheless real enough that you can use it to train bigger models. So this is sort of like a, a, a multi-stage kind of process where there's an AI here, the purpose of which is to preserve privacy by inventing plausible fictions. And then there's an AI over here somewhere that is gathering all the fictions together. They're not real conversations. They're not real medical data. They're not real MRIs, but they're real enough. And only at each local point, like in that particular hospital, or in this particular region or among these people use this particular platform to go to our sort of digital twin analogy to that, to that medical records thing. There's a local server somewhere where that data had to be gathered and used to be trained a, uh, to train plausible fictional examples. And then those fictions are what gets shared with larger organizations and what gets pooled to make a more powerful or more useful AI. But, Maybe in the future, we could get to the point where every individual device is powerful enough to generate those plausible fictions. So you are sharing not the recordings in your diary, but your system generates some plausible fake, something that is real enough to be usable as training data, but is it's not a censored version, not a sanitized version of your sanitized version of your thoughts or the things that you've shared with it, but a fully artificial recreation. In the same way that you can use GANs, these sort of generative adversarial networks, these sort of text-to-image things or image-generating things to generate like fake paintings from a famous artist, maybe we could generate a fake conversation from a real, ordinary, normal person, and that would be good enough to train other AI in a way that would preserve privacy. What about a corporation turning that bad though? Like if you're talking about just generating a fake conversation, how many people are eventually just going to be like, we can do this a hell of a lot faster if we just change a couple of details instead of the whole conversation and duplicating it? Yeah, this is this is the problem, right? You got to trust every step of the way. You got to trust the people who are doing the, the plausible fictions. You've got to trust the people who are using the data. Because one of the things that we we do in research is we talk a lot about de-identified 
data. So in other words, in experiments in psychology or something or other, you should de-identify, remove the identifying information from your data as soon as possible. And only the smallest group of people should have access to that sort of key for who, whether participants really, and then they just have a random string of numbers for as their ID or something like that. And there's no, there's no identification can't sort of extract out. Um, a, a random student who's PhD student who's working on the project should not be able to uncover the identity of people. But de-identified is changing because it is now possible to identify people from scraps of information, and then you can connect to their online profiles, or you can fill in the blanks using other data. The amount of information that you need in order to identify someone is significantly lower and significantly more spotty than it used to be. And so that creates this kind of difficulty when it comes to working with anonymous data. Um, you say like, oh, my computer crashed and sent one of those anonymous reports to the company or something. Well, maybe there's enough of a fingerprint on that sort of stuff in your laptop that it's possible to uncover whose that was or where it was just from that anonymous report. And if that's possible, then I don't know that we can trust a lot of the people who would be involved in this stuff, well, right? You, a lot of the steps along the way. The anonymous report has barcode and it has that model number. So, I mean, it probably isn't super difficult to track. It's not super, yeah. Uh, yeah but it's got serial number. I also think that you said the key word here, which is trust. And I think that you'll probably have a lot more people that are willing to send their information willingly if they're just told about it right. I think a lot of the issues where people have problems with their data being sent over, I mean, we know from the social dilemma that came out, I think it's almost two years now, um, when that came out, people lost their freaking minds. I was normal to it because I already knew it was happening. And people would say like, oh, you're a tinfoil hat. It's like, no, it's just smart business, dude. You got to look at the smart business aspect of things. And I had a guy on here, John Callis, um, who has made a bunch of encrypted email servers and all these different types of devices and really knows the big tech industry and kind of said it in the best possible way, which is you don't pay to use the internet besides paying your internet bill, but paying to use Google, you can use another method where you subscribe and they don't give you all these ads and they don't sell your data. He pays for Gmail. I didn't know you could pay for it. And he goes, yeah, they don't use or sell any of my stuff because I pay to use their thing. But you are accepting that you are a product in a sense when you use something that is for free. I think there's that route. But I also think there's an issue when we talk about the word trust. I think people just giving their data out willingly if it's said right. I think if you give them an article and say, hey, we notice a lot of benefit from you know getting some information from this, what you would consider that you would let us use. Um, just give them that disclaimer or something, you know, something where they can't just click accept. They have to actually like just something small. If, if you if you do like a long paragraph, people are just going to scroll to the bottom. But if you just let them know, I mean, there's I just recently I saw a person that was begging for money on the side of the street. We have a lot in my town and most of the people are just getting alcohol with the money that they get. But this guy was like a war veteran type person dressed up, you know, everything. And he had a bucket. And I was like, I'm not going to give this guy money to go get beer. And then he walked past me and I ended up rolling my window down. I had $2. I was like, here's $2, man. Like, you know, I hope, I hope it helps. Sorry. So I got, I don't really carry cash. And, you know, I didn't know I was going to do that, but you end up finding that like people will surprise you in a lot of ways when it comes to like sending data about things that are might be personal, because if you just say like, Hey, this might actually help 
someone out there, like you, we all noticed men talking about their mental health was like new and people are like, kind of like, this is, this is crazy. And it's like, well, now it's becoming a little bit more normal. You don't want it to be so much to where you get a scrape on your knee and you feel like you need to talk about it to a bunch of people, but you do definitely have moments where you need to talk about things. You need to, you know, deload from the pain and all these types oh, of stuff that goes on. Your life. Yeah. So if you have this idea of how we've opened up to that, I think more people, if they're read something like, Hey, you know, Kaz, if this, if your data, you know, you have this rare condition, your data will be so useful to us. Can you just select some things that maybe you would want to send if you would like to send anything that could actually help us in the long run? And we'll keep you anonymous. We'll keep your age anonymous. We'll keep all these things anonymous, but we would like to use some of that information. You go, well, it's better than you actually at, I mean, it's, it's taking it from me. So there you go. And then you have probably a whole gap of people that would be more than willing to send their information just because they think that they're helping somebody else out there. Because they are. Yeah. I think that's the, I think that's the idea, right? It's like, it's really different if it's informed consent and that you believe in what's being done with the data that I, like someone, someone's much smarter than me said, um, the most common lie told in the modern world is I have read and understood the terms and conditions. Right? That's the most common lie that we tell every single day, every single thing we use, I've read and understood these. Uh, and, and you're right, if it's long, no one's going to read it. Um, uh, if you want someone to engage with something, you need to do the storytelling bit. You need to do the hard bit where you, you say to them why they should care about something, why this thing is important, what you're going to do with it, how you're going to treat the information. You need to do that as clearly, concisely, and compellingly as you can. Um, that's real tricky. Storytelling's tough, but it's doable. I, I think, you know, we're going to have a probably a couple of years of, I think more of these conversations are becoming normal, but we'll have a, like, I didn't notice how complex AI was until I started talking about it. And I'm like heavily interested in it. I think I got a good grasp of it a little bit. Um, but I think it's going to take a couple of years of just kind of talking this out and deciding the direction. And we're going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. Big business might take some of those, you know, routes for us. And next, you know, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit, but I think eventually we're going to get there. The idea of a V project you kind of hinted at earlier which is getting everybody on the same page i mean it is a sci-fi kind of route where we talk about everyone in the world agreeing and loving each other but i mean i think that also comes with the issue that really lands in the area of we don't really understand each other a whole lot i, don't, I mean you're in australia we're talking right now but i don't understand you like I, it's not that we're di so different it's just that we're we we gotta we know each other better and i think that culturally with, so distinct yeah yeah, yeah. Even among two white guys, right? Yeah, it's just, it's just, we just need more interactions on things and understanding. And I think once you are able to really tap in, I think that's what the whole point of the Neuralink was, was being able to read people's thoughts as well, was just this aspect of you can understand things that necessarily a lot of people aren't vocalizing correctly. And I, I look at that with every conversation that I have. It's like, we don't necessarily need to agree on the same exact things. And I'll try my best to make sure we find some points where we might not agree, but it doesn't mean it needs to be an argument. It's just the conversations need to be had. I mean, you don't want to get stuck in an era where you have people that are just arguing over the earth warming or not. It's like, we got to evolve past that. We got to talk about renewable energies. You know, we got to talk about whatever, because I think everyone can talk about that fine. It's just politicized or it's something like that. And I think in the direction that we're going with with AI, we got to make sure that it still stay, stands in the thoughts of people, not in the aspect of politicalness or or in the aspect of governments or whatever you want to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree, man. Like 
almost always, if someone is saying we should have the discussion and someone is saying we shouldn't have the discussion, the first person is right, right? There's, there's a lot to be said for preventing speech or, uh, or other kind of communication that hurts, that hurts people. Um, but, but typically that can be managed, should be able to be managed in ways other than shutting down discourse. Um, there's, there's issues of power, sort of power discrepancies among different people who are involved in conversations and different people being taken seriously when they say this is an acceptable thing or this isn't an acceptable thing or we should talk about this or we shouldn't talk about that. And that's never going to go away. There's going to be power discrepancies in anything. Um, but it's really important to make sure that different uh, different voices are being heard, different options are staying open, and people are thinking and listening for themselves. I think it is uh, it has always been the case that you couldn't understand everything that's going on, right? But that seems to be getting more and more true as technology advances, as the world becomes smaller, we will become more connected. Everything seems to go faster. Uh, the world changes quicker and quicker. And I'm not just saying that because I'm approaching 40 and everybody who, who, who gets older starts to feel like they're, they're, they're getting out of touch with the world. Right. But um, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it hits you when it hits you. Um, no, I, I, I think that it, what is important is that we retain the ability and that we encourage the ability and that we support the ability to have conversations because nothing will ever change without people having conversations. Um, uh, vaccine hesitancy is a significant, uh, is like an amazingly obvious answer here, right? Like just telling people that they're wrong and they're bad and they're hurting people isn't going to fucking change their mind. Of course, it's not going to change their mind. When you tell someone they're a bad person, well, they've officially stopped caring about what you say or think. Um, finding other ways to to engage and to converse is both the single most important thing that we humans can be doing right now and the single most important thing that we can be exploring teaching our AI is to do, to engage, to support, to listen, to make people feel like they're heard and to not shut people down when they have different ideas. Do you think that they can make, like would be a good implementation, I would say of AI being able to create a digital clone based on, like if I died in a car accident, it's going to get grim in a second. Hang on. Um, if I died in a car accident and my parents wanted to create a digital clone of me, they can scan every aspect of every conversation I've ever had on my show. So a thousand something episodes from one hour to two hour long conversations. I'm me on the show. They're, they're going to be able to recognize who that person is. Obviously, I don't need to you know, put on a radio voice or do anything like that to make me any different than what this is. I couldn't do it for that long. I've stayed relatively consistent. You know, pat on my back. Um, yeah, but yeah, if they created stuff, a, right? if they created a, if they created a digital clone, I start going to an aspect. How many things? If you look at people's blueprint, and I think this is a good aspect for making transparent uh, ideas and conversations a little bit more normal. Is that if you're yourself on the internet, rather than showing all the things that you have, you know, people put up posts about times that they feel bad, maybe sometimes too much. But I think you can get a good representation and also with your parents included in there, their friends included in there to be able to create something where you can have a copy of someone that can be spoke to like a conversational AI 
of someone that is no longer with us. And I mean, it, it becomes an issue. It's the same thing they do with actors and the same thing they do with um, like rappers as well, too. You're not only signing your license for your art, you're also signing yourself. And that's why they were able to create a Tupac hologram. And a lot of the family kind of had issues with that, mostly because, you know, he's not around anymore and he's performing concerts like Michael Jackson made a new CD and everything. But you hear music that's created from artists that are no longer with us. Like Amy Winehouse had an album that was all like AI, like just chopping up songs and putting stuff together. Dude, it's so good. It is like out. It, yeah, awesome. It's okay. insanely yeah. good. Like, I mean, I listen she to was her always like, good, right? Like dude, everyone I'll have focused to send you on, on her personal issues, but that she was good. I'll have to send it to you because it's like it's it'll make your like arm hair stand up your neck hair stand it just it's so freaky and eerie but it's a, a a program that is just able to scan these things i mean my intro used to be ai music and it was something that was just unpredictable but i was part of the the, the pathway that it was walking i would sit there and deny it i would accept the versions that i did like and then it would keep mashing with my preferences and tastes and things and, and evolved with that i was like we can do that a little bit more, but then we landed to an aspect of like digital AI of someone who is no longer with us. I mean, cause you got to look at an aspect. If we create AI that we grow up with, I mean, the AI is not going to get into a car accident. if we do, you know, it's going to be somewhere else where you start I, wondering. Yeah. There's a huge, there's a huge question there. Um, I'm not opposed philosophically to the idea. I think that it should be managed carefully to avoid uh, making people's grief worse. I think it would be interesting to have an opportunity to say goodbye to someone. Um, you see examples of that in uh, Facebook before they implemented uh, memorial mode, the accounts of people who passed away. Uh, they, uh, they found some researchers wrote papers about people leaving messages on the walls of people, the Facebook walls of people who'd, uh, who died as a way to sort of have a conversation with them pretty one-sided conversation but that brought solace to those people in those instances others might find it confronting or make them feel worse especially if they got a notification that's been a new post on someone's wall or something that might make them feel bad but um whatever our attitudes about this are we can guarantee the people in the futures will be different i think it would be if someone created a digital clone of me and i passed away then that might be a useful way uh for people to say goodbye but that clone wouldn't have new experiences it wouldn't age it wouldn't change over time some of the best mates i've had for a long time have gone through a lot of change in the decades uh since i met them and that journey together is what makes us friends and if one party in that friendship got fixed in time because they passed away and a copy was made a digital clone was made of them that might provide some benefit for time but i think that unless the strong ai problem was solved too and that copy could age and experience or at least produce a reasonable facsimile of aging and experiencing life then we wouldn't have anything common in common anymore as we started, as we continued on in our journeys, right? Um, if if I died and my AI copy was stuck in time, then would my friends find they had anything in common with me anymore as they started to change and I didn't? I don't, I don't know. That 
that feels like a movie that could win an Oscar, right? Like a story about someone talking about uh, talking to their AI friend, and then over time, as their life changes, like realizing that the digital clone of their friend isn't going to move on, and that they're a different person now. I think limiting it um, is probably a good aspect of where it would go. I mean, we see that now. I have a, a voicemail from my grandma who died last year. And it, I mean, it still tears me up, you know, to this day, if I, if I listen to it, but it's something I've saved, I've backed up on multiple different drives. So I never lose it. It's nothing more than just like happy birthday. I love you. And then I, you know, I called her right back, but it's like an aspect. I'm glad I have that. Cause a lot of people, like, I don't want to forget the voice, but there's no, like, I'm not able to sit there and have conversations and it's not going to excel. Like, Hey, did you hear about this? And it's like, I remember uh, your third birthday part. It's like, we're, we're never going to evolve from that conversation. It doesn't necessarily need to be like that, but it's the small little bits like the Hal Jordan from like, um, not Hal Jordan, uh, the Superman scenario where they have uh, Superman's dad and the fortress of solitude it doesn't need to, you know, carry on conversations, but it's limited to a certain thing where you know that this isn't a, a copy. Yeah, this isn't like your another uh, reverberance of it. It's just it's that echo. It's that piece of it that's just like you know. There's a kid that was playing video games, and one of the video games he plays is a race car game, and the dad's ghost car was the best lap, and he would like try and race his dad. It was playing video games with him. It doesn't need to be a whole lot where we go to the ends of the extremes of keeping on the person's life, but it's just an aspect of when people feel sad and they want to hear your voice, when they want to hear something. It does. It could just be a message as long as they understood that it was a memento with a bit more originality than a single message or a ghost car on a mario kart track that you could have a conversation with it and it would say i remember your third birthday and it would say are you so big now and things like that but as long as people don't lose themselves in that and stop believing that it's a person until it is one day it might be i'm not going to say we'll never get too strong ai but until it is, there's maybe a danger that people would lose themselves in that echo and want it to be alive. And that would maybe forestall the grieving process in a sense. Maybe. I don't know. I think that's a risk. I don't know how likely it is. I think it's the, the same people that would get lost in that or the same people that never move on as well, too, just with nothing there. You know, they end up drowning themselves in alcohol human, or something. It's like a that. human tendency. Yeah. Hey, we will have to wrap up soon because it's uh, we're good. It's we're almost talking for two hours. Tired. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, Kaz, I really appreciate you giving me your time and everything, man. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Um, if you uh, go to the Designing with AI Lab uh, channel on YouTube, you can see a number of the lectures and stuff that I put out there over COVID. I took the opportunity uh, in my teaching to just make it publicly available. Um, it's it's not something we uh, we advertise, and everything on there is sort of like originally intended for a um, for a class. But if you're interested in following up stuff on AI or creativity or design or programming or information visualization or any of the other stuff that uh, that I teach, check out the Designing with AI Lab channel on YouTube. Uh, you can also hit me up on Twitter at, at Namio, N-A-R-M-I-O. I'm always interested to chat to folks. Well, I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.